When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Monday Buckeye Talk, Doug Maurice and Nathan Baird of Cleveland.com. We're going to do what we do every Monday. We look at Ohio State. We look at the national college picture. And then we wrap it up with what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking. And Nathan, we're going to do a lot with the Ohio State passing game and the passing defenses that they may be facing ahead. And we did a little bit of that. Sometimes I think, Nathan, I like the, I thought again the the post game pod was pretty comprehensive. I almost think we do too much in the post game pod sometimes because it's like I don't know do we talk about everything, but we're going to look at some of the other teams ahead who would maybe have a chance to try to defend Ohio State and some of the interesting matchups that may be out there, both among teams on the schedule and potential playoff opponents. So we do want to dig into that. I did some research on that, but you also re-looked at the Iowa game to get a sense of what Iowa tried to do there. And again, statistically, and we've, we've sort of talked all around this, I, I, I checked the latest PFF grades based on their their individual like coverage grades that then if you go and look at this is what PFF has, and then if you just click on the column, rank everybody by their coverage grades, right? This is including Saturday's games. I was first. I was still first yep. uh, among all the, the PFF coverage grades. And again, if you look at uh, the EPA metric, which is just a good sort of like metric of per play, per game, like it takes a lot of things into account. Uh, even after the Ohio State game, Iowa is is still way up there in overall defense and pass defense. So it is a, just, I don't know, it's just like a little bit of a confirmation. They're fifth in pass defense and 13th in total defense still after giving up 54 points to Ohio State and C.J. Stroud throwing for whatever, 286 and four touchdowns. So we covered that after the game. I was pretty good. What did you think re-watching it? What did you take away from maybe what Iowa tried to do and why they were successful at times and not successful at times? So we spent all week trying to talk about ways that we thought that the way either people already thought about Iowa or the way Ohio State was talking about Iowa, even defensively, was probably not applicable. And I thought when I rewatched this game, I saw a manifestation of everything Ryan Day was talking about about Iowa pretty much all week. I thought you saw a really well-coached, defense. I thought you saw a really, really, really disciplined defense and just a fundamentally strong defense. You saw guys 
doing the things that Ohio State is doing well in a lot of ways, which is just being in the right place and doing their job. And I think that, but but it's amplified because a lot of teams want to do that. A lot of teams do do that against their more talent equated opponents, and they cannot do that against Ohio State. And Iowa did. I thought you saw guys just hanging in coverage when other guys don't. I thought you saw, especially in the way that they defended the run, and I know we're going to talk more about the pass, but they are very linked in, in some important ways, I think, in the way this game played out. And I thought you saw Iowa like playing the run downhill and even coming off the edges and crashing hard. I thought they were reading plays really well, which I think goes back to that coaching. I think you know Ryan Day had talked about it, coming into the game like this is you watch this team on film and yeah they've been doing the same thing for a thousand years or however long Kirk Ferentz has been there and Phil Parker's been there but the guys just make their they know what they're supposed they know their reads they know their fits and they make them and that is going to get blown off the field sometimes in the wrong situation but it didn't really on Saturday and I it it really helped them um in what was still probably not a necessarily a talent equated matchup, I thought this was just a really sound, um, disciplined defensive performance by Iowa. And in a, a couple of specific stats that I thought told us a lot about this game. And they did it, but they did it until they didn't do it. Right. Right. So when they, when, in, when Ohio State got it going, was it, something changed or was it eventually this Ohio state passing game well, is going to get you? Yeah. I don't think you're going to shut any passing game of Ohio state's talent, Ohio state's caliber down forever. And I don't think you're going to flummox Ohio state's coaching staff forever. I think eventually they're going to dial something up. You know, you come in with a game plan and a plan of attack and the other team counters and they practice too. Uh, and you, there's a, there's, Sometimes there's a chess match that unfolds and sometimes there is just the, you know, the, the bully going through and, and kicking sandcastles into the surf or whatever, which is what Ohio State does a lot. And this one was more of a, a grind for a, a lot of this game. But I, I think eventually you saw that, again, in one specific stat, it, it, that once Ohio State could kind of break through in one way, then the dominoes fell a little bit on just those those drives that eventually started happening in the third quarter. Uh, but up until then, I thought it was Iowa doing everything that you would ask from a defense. Because even then, I mean, Ohio State's still putting points on the board. Ohio State is still, um, you know, it still has the, the its its best players on the field until Smith and Jigba got hurt again. But Everything you always just ask of teams is make Ohio State drive. Even if they're getting points, if you just make them drive, you give yourself a chance. And that was what Iowa did. They did it better than any team has done except, I guess, Notre Dame, even though that game um, was a little bit different just in terms of Notre Dame not being that explosive offensively, but at least being competent. I still feel like that you and I are somewhat disagreeing on like what the vibe of the game was. Like You come away... Mostly impressed with like what Iowa did defensively, or how how do you certainly with for, the idea for, that they gave up? Well, but the, but a game's not two and a half quarters. Like it's it's a right. four quarter game, and they gave up fifty four points. And I know obviously we don't have to cover the Iowa offense stinks, but how how 
What do you make of the fact that Ohio State scored 54? Ohio State's often scored 47. And a good chunk of those points came when Ohio State, when Iowa's defense was put in a bad position, gave up almost no field and held Ohio State to a field goal. So I, again, I, I think it was, it's certainly they scored four when, touchdowns in the second half. They scored four touchdowns in the second half, three, one on defense. Right. So they scored three right. touchdowns in the second half. Okay. We're just having an opposite conversation. I don't, I don't know, but like, are you almost, you may as well say only three touchdowns in the second half. Like that. All right. Well, 20, if you did, like, I, I just don't, I don't like, why did Ohio state's passing offense in the end crack them? Just because like Ohio state's passing offense is just overwhelmingly good. And Marvin Harrison made a fingertip catch and Julian Fleming smoked their third corner deep. Like what, what, like, what are the lessons? I, this isn't an Iowa podcast. What are the lessons for Ohio State? Do you come away thinking Iowa's really good, but Ohio State can crack a really good pass defense? Or do you come away thinking, like, Iowa's really good and, hmm, I wonder? Well, no, I think because, it, and it works out, looking at the first half, looking at the second half, I think is instructive because I think what you saw was Ohio State make the adjustments it needed to to crack it as Ryan day used that phrase. Like it takes a while to crack this defense. Mm. We knew that. And that's what they were eventually able to do. Here's one of the stats that really like crystallizes a lot of things for me. So Ohio state came into this game. as just like an explosive play machine. Um, and I hadn't actually, there's a piece of this math that I hadn't actually done. I'm going to kind of do it on the fly. So in the first six games of this season, Ohio state had, at least, other than Notre Dame, Notre Dame they only had nine explosive plays, partially because Notre Dame was, you know, trying to limit possessions, and Iowa did that pretty well too. Not, uh, so nine, and then the next, so five on the run, four on the pass against Arkansas State, four run, eight pass against Toledo, seven run, eleven pass. This is where it gets out of hand. Wisconsin, seven run, eight pass. Rutgers, nine run, four pass. Michigan State, seven run, nine pass. So you're getting double digit explosive plays actually up towards like 15 16 18 explosive plays every game against iowa they had seven and one in the running game which i think is hugely important in how a team is able to defend ohio state if ohio state's not gashing you on the ground then i think it does change the way I, we had this discussion on the post game pod but when you rewatch this game and you see how iowa was choosing to play this game the way it was, it was a lot of two high coverages. It was a lot of corners playing, you know, off the line of scrimmage and, and coming up and engaging that way. So in theory, the run was there and Ohio State wasn't able to take advantage of that because Iowa was defending the run pretty well. Um, it, and it's not even just the sheer number. It's because I was like, obviously go inside that and look at the, the rate of things. In that five games since Notre Dame, every game was like 22, 23, 21, 22, 23 percent of how many of Ohio State's plays were explosive plays. And against Iowa, it was 11. So instead of it being one every five plays is an explosive play, which is when you're just destroying a team, it was more like one of nine. It was a lot harder to come by. And most of those came in the second half, as you're looking now. I mean, the 27-yard, the one drive where they went 27-18-15 on the pass uh, to finally get in the end zone again and, uh, like, finally get things going. And then you have, like, the 79-yarder to... Um, 
to Fleming. You had a 20-yard pass to Stover, the one where he kind of went out and did the little uh, hop over the defender on the sideline. So that's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just doing that on the fly, but isn't that, that's like five of those seven explosive plays were on two drives in the second half. Like Iowa just was not giving up any explosive plays. They were making Ohio State have to grind its way down the field. And in that first half, Ohio State wasn't doing it. They weren't grinding down the field. They were settling for field goals. But part of it was, I mean, I don't excuse the short field for like why the offense was clunky early, but you can't have explosive plays when you have super short fields. Yeah, you can. It's not like they were getting the ball at the 10. They were getting the ball inside the 40. Let me look. You can't get a 12 or 15 or 18-yard play or run. They do it all the time, but they didn't on Saturday. The didn't they have like a, a couple super short fields or no? Uh, in that first half, it was pretty consistently, you know, it, what was it like three, three possessions so inside? So, like, listen 40, to this: like, that they, they they got the ball at the Iowa thirty-four. They completed a sixteen-yard pass on first down that gets it to the eighteen. Then they have a nine-yard play, but it's wiped out by an illegal formation. Then they have a nine-yard run. Now they're down to the 14-yard line, and then they have two bad plays and kick a 35-yard field goal. So, like, they took over at the 34. They had a 15, they had a 16-yard play and a 9-yard play, like, from the 34. Like, I do – yeah, I just we just we just see this a little bit differently. It's just I, – I, like, I think it's hard to say, oh, you don't have any explosive plays when it's like, well – I mean, it is harder, as Kevin Wilson said, it is harder – when you shorten the field, it is harder to like beat people deep because you compress the field and that kind of thing. And then it's you you can't even really take those shots, which allows everybody to, you know, it just gets a little more crowded in there. It doesn't mean it's but, impossible, but I think from an explosive play standpoint, I think it matters some. And but they also weren't doing any of it with the run. And I know we wanted to talk about the passing game, but like none of it with the run. Like the past four games, seven seven nine seven explosive plays with the run, one against Iowa. That is a yeah. pretty stark contrast. So I wanted to compare this to something. I went back and looked at the Wisconsin game to see, because I went I went back and counted through Ohio State. We, we asked after the game, was Iowa putting them in longer situations than they usually are in on like second and third down? And it was of the 16 times they had a second down play, it was an average of 6.6 yards to go. Eight of those were seven or more yards. I went back and looked at just the Wisconsin game. They were aver- actually had eight yards to go on the 18 plays that were when the first string offense was still in the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was four yards to go on their average third down play as opposed to 3.5. So even a little bit longer against Wisconsin. But you go back and look at the play-by-play of that Wisconsin game. They didn't even face a third down until their fourth possession. Like the first drive of that game is like first down, second down, first down, first down, first down, first down. Like it's just a hot knife through butter. And it – it wasn't our imagination that it was clunkier against Iowa. Iowa made them work in a way that other teams that are of essentially largely of Iowa's caliber have not been able to do this year. Who's of Iowa's caliber defensively? I'm saying largely uh, teams that largely of Iowa's caliber. Iowa is the best defense they face. No question. Yeah. Well, it's what I'm having. I mean, it's, it's a defensive conversation, right? That Like we're that, Iowa's the best defense they've, they've faced. And so the question is that we're trying to get to, I guess, so when you watch, and, and, and we'll get to this stuff now, when you watch um, 
a really good corner. Did you think Moss stood out? I mean, we did talk about that a little bit post game with he ended up on Marvin Harrison Jr. a lot. Did you think having a pretty accomplished lead corner was a pretty big contributing factor to them holding the Ohio State passing down early? Yeah, I did. I, I thought you saw examples of times where either, you know, he was able to interrupt a play or frankly, that even if they're making a completion, that play is not getting loose the way it does on other other teams that they played. And yeah. I thought you saw it, especially in the red zone, especially on throws into the end zone where I mean, it just so many times this year, it has seemed automatic that they're running a route into the end zone and somebody's going to catch it. And it that was yeah. not the case on Saturday. Like, like Moss was there. They were, they were pushing those guys out. They were not giving them the space that they needed to operate a lot of times. And there was stuff going on a lot of times at the line of scrimmage. I thought Iowa did a good job of getting, it wasn't that they got too Stroud a lot, but you're moving the pocket enough or moving the line enough that he's having to throw off his back foot. He's not getting, he's not able to step into every throw the way I think he would ultimately like to. And I thought that probably affected enough throws a little bit. It was some of that was, was working in connection with each other, but I thought Moss and really, I thought all the DBs, but you, you never like, I, I had a hard time. And I was even looking for this a little bit. Like, where's the failure? Where's the guy who is mm. just like, Oh man, that guy just, that guy just laid down on that play, right? And had no Tannic Buka just blew right by him or Marvin Harrison or Julian Fleming. Now, it did eventually happen with Julian Fleming. But for, again, for that first two and a half, uh, um, you know, for the first big chunk of the game, I thought those guys were hanging. And I thought even, even you know, yeah, the one big play happened, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't an epidemic. And so many times, again, with Ohio State plays, it looks like an epidemic of failure defensively for the other team. Yeah. Um, all right. PFF coverage grades by just who you would be interested in, right? This is team coverage grades. Iowa's one. Illinois is three. And I will also tell you that, uh, in EPA, defensive EPA, both per game and per play, uh, overall defense and pass defense, Illinois is first. <laughs> so it's like, uh Oh, like get ready for that Illinois pass yep. defense in the Big Ten championship game and Ohio State might be in trouble. I don't I don't think that's actually quite the case. I, I don't I don't know that that's indicative. I mean there's some style of play things there. And if we if and when we get to an Ohio State Illinois matchup in the Big Ten championship game, we will certainly dive into that. But statistically that's where that is right now. So again, PFF coverage grades Iowa one, Illinois three, Georgia five, Michigan ten. For context, Ohio State is 14th. Wisconsin, who they beat, 18th. Bama, 19th. Rutgers, who they beat, 23rd. Penn State this week, who we've covered a little bit, and we'll cover more on Penn State. We're not going to go in depth now. 37th. Clemson, 46th. Oregon, who might win the Pac-12, 51st. TCU, 71st, might win the Big 12. Notre Dame, who they beat, 77th. Tennessee, 109. Not great. Coverage grade for Tennessee. When you look at so Michigan was was tenth in that, and that feels kind of real. When you look again, just at pass defense EPA per play, pass defense Michigan seven, Bama twenty two, Georgia twenty five, USC thirty two, Clemson forty, TCU seventy eight, Tennessee one eleven, Oregon one seventeen. There are some teams down there 
Nathan, right? If they wind up with Tennessee or TCU or Oregon in the playoff, um, those teams are going to be scared of Ohio State. And they're going to be spending a lot of time saying, what can we do? Tennessee's had some injuries. They've had some guys suspended. They're going to get some guys back. That's not going to automatically fix everything. Um, you know, just on the lookout for that a little bit. There's a lot of teams in the middle. Right, Clemson in their worst moments had some guys out, but they've also been toasted by some ACC quarterbacks in a league that has good quarterbacks. USC, you know, Cam Rising did some stuff going crazy, throwing to the tight end, the Utah quarterback there. Georgia and Bama both kind of middling there, right? I, I, like the, the point kind of is Nathan that I, I do think like Michigan, maybe even more than just statistically, might be the pass defense that I that is the one that gives them the most trouble. But when you look at it and trying to figure out who kind of has guys, who has like a Riley Moss kind of guy, if you think that matters, let's start with a great individual corner and then go from there. It's Georgia has this freshman Malachi Starks as a DB who's played really well. And um, I guess he's a little more of a safety, but this, uh, Keely Ringo, who was awesome last year, they're actually throwing at him a little bit more. This Kamar Lassiter guy's played pretty well. Ringo's pass, pass coverage grade by PFF is actually pretty bad. It's 59, which is not very good. But Keely Ringo's like a five-star guy. They have a bunch of safeties that are pretty good in coverage. I, I do think um, – I was, I was reading a guy, Nathan, that Georgia uh, – one of the Georgia beat writers, he gave their secondary an A-. So far this year, in comparison, he gave their defensive line a C plus that I do think a year ago I said, if you're going to beat Georgia, you got to throw over him because you can't run through him because they had all those first day and second day NFL draft picks up front and at linebacker. I actually do think right now the secondary might be the strength of this Georgia team. Jalen Carter is still a beast at defensive tackle. We know that. But uh, again, Georgia is fifth in coverage grade. I do think if they got to Georgia, right, that would make sense. Nathan, that I mean, Georgia remains very high on the radar of national contenders. You know, Shahan and I on the College Football Survivor Show did a draft last week of like the most sort of like the most sure things to make the playoff or win a conference championship. Ohio State was obviously the overwhelming number one pick. Georgia was the number two pick of like, okay, well, who's who do you really sort of think is going to make noise here? That would continue, I think, to make sense to us that Georgia probably has a defense that gives everybody a little bit of trouble, even though they're probably not up to the standard a year ago, but like Ringo and Lasseter and Malachi Starks, they have some good young players back there. And the thing that as I'm looking ahead to who Ohio State is going to have to face, and this is probably not completely fair because however you do it, if it works, it works. But we assume that Georgia is going to be doing it in a more dynamic athletic way in the back end than even Iowa does it. Right. That Iowa is yeah. a lot of very good scheme, very good discipline. It, they, they're hard-nosed guys. They they play tough. They do what they're supposed to do. But, like, I was watching the first series, even just the first series that Ohio State had in this game, where uh, Stroud gets flushed and throws a ball on the run that a DB, like, almost gets to and picks off. And then on the next series was the one where he and Buka, I think, got crossed up on, and he throws it, like, right into a, a safety. Like, there were multiple times where I thought another team, maybe a, a more athletic, dynamic team, might have picked off Stroud more in a game like this. 
So that is, yeah. I think, something that Ohio State needs to be aware of and working on a solution for over the next month for when, even when the Michigan situation arises. And actually, frankly, for Saturday, uh, Penn State is lower on that list than I think we might have guessed coming into the year. That one you read off earlier about, you know, metrically where those past defenses rank, but we know they've got some dudes. And if even if those dudes aren't consistent, they're, they're dudes on occasion, whether it's Joey Porter yeah. and some of those other guys they have. So uh, that's something that I think Ohio State needs to be aware of a little bit. I mean, it's four straight games where he's thrown at least one pick, and it was getting a little loose at times on Saturday. It, it is interesting. I do think most of the time when C.J. Stroud throws a pick, it's like, ah, oh, C.J. made a mistake. But there are defenses out there that like, oh, you didn't really do anything wrong, and a guy made a great play. And like, that's not really the world we're living in right now. It's like every almost every time you can like see C.J. almost like once it back when he throws. It's like, oh, that's not what he wanted to do there. You know what I mean? Like you just yeah. try something you shouldn't have tried, or you just misread something a little bit, or you're a little behind a guy. And that second one that I was just talking about, I thought you saw Iowa doing some things schematically that I don't know that we've seen a lot of teams do. Now, I will say we do these rewatches a lot and I'm usually focusing on one thing. And the one thing that I think we've never done, one that I focused on is the Ohio State passing game. Cause it's a lot of times we're like, Hey, why was the Ohio State passing game good on Saturday? I'm like, Oh, maybe it's cause they have CJ Stroud and these other guys. So we haven't really analyzed it that closely, but the thing that struck me on that play was Iowa blitzes with a corner and they play that quarters coverage, which is just like passing guys along to each other sort of as you go farther in the secondary. And I thought it was just a beautiful play, like the corner blitzes and they just passes them off to the safety to pick up Jackson Smith, the Jigba. And now that corner's coming that hurries the throw and is why I think Stroud threw it the way he did, where he did in the manner that he did. And again, almost turns into a, another pick. So again, just something that they've seen it now. I don't know that they really saw it to that extent at any point coming into today. And it's one for the memory bank the next time they encounter that. So let's talk about Bama a little bit. Cause you know, you always might see Bama. It's kind of interesting with Bama. Um, their grades are actually pretty high in the back end. It feels like that they've been burned like Hendon hooker, right? They gave up a boatload of points and lost that game. Their corners, their nickel corner, Brian Branch, his PFF coverage grade, 76. That's pretty good. Kool-Aid McKinstry, who's like kind of their best corner, coverage grade, 75.4. And the thing that matters here and that Ohio State fans are aware of is Eli Ricks, the LSU transfer, who Ohio State took a glance at and he winds up at Alabama. Maybe Ohio State said no. We don't know exactly. He started for the first time against Mississippi State on Saturday, and he's probably their other corner now. And he has the best coverage grade on the team. He's played like 150 snaps, 79.8. Saban thought he played well on Saturday, kind of gave up one thing. But they've kind of been waiting on him. This guy, Terrian Arnold, had been their other corner. Still a decent coverage grade, 73.8. But if if And then you have Jordan Battle and DeMarco Hellams, who are like two veteran safeties. Again, some of those guys got burned by Hendon Hooker. But they seem to have some pretty good guys back there. And if you're going to have Eli Ricks and Kool-Aid McKinstry as kind of your main outside corners, that probably will work pretty well. Um, it feels like the five guys, four of the five guys that would play for them now, if if Ricks is a starter, their PFF coverage grades are all like 75 or higher. Just for context, and again, PFF lets you do some context. It's a way to compare if you're not watching every single snap of every single major team. Here are the coverage grades for the Ohio State secondary players. Lathan Ransom, 85.6. That's through the roof. 
That's a great coverage grade. Ronnie Hickman, 79.2. Excellent coverage grade. Here's like the corners. Like Tanner McAllister, who seems to be in the right place at the right time all the time and has a bunch of picks. His coverage grade is 63.7, which is not great. The corners, J.K. Johnson, 62.5. Denzel Burke, 61.9. Cam Brown, 56.5. Those are all bad. Those are all lower than like anybody in the Alabama secondary. So that doesn't mean that Alabama secondary players are better than Ohio State's, but we're just trying to give a little bit of context. If you watch Bama versus Tennessee and think, like, oh, they stink. They can't cover anybody. It's like, okay, well, I'm not exactly sure what Ohio State's secondary would do against Hendon Hooker. It doesn't mean that Bama is going to shut down C.J. Stroud and, the, and these receivers. It, it doesn't mean that at all. No, I don't think anyone's going to do that. But when you are putting Eli Ricks in the starting lineup, Nathan, in past the halfway point of the season, of course they have some dudes. And you could see how maybe the Bama pass defense is going to take a step up. And they did get toasted. They got toasted against Tennessee, and the result was they lost. But that's a pretty good way to improve is putting Eli Ricks in the starting lineup. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's, uh, that's a significant talent. No matter what else is going on with that guy on a, a given uh, week or whatever, clearly a talent. I would be really interested to hear from Alabama or really, I guess, any secondary. Like, what? who do you want to face? Like, not a specific quarterback, but just style of quarterback. What do you want to face? Do you want to face a guy like Hooker, who is not, I don't think, is a very good passer, but I would not say is a as good of a passer as Stroud, but is very mobile and can hurt you in a lot of other different ways, which means that you have to account for more things at the snap as a DB than you do, I think, when you're facing Stroud. Although Stroud is accomplished enough as a passer, he's into that next level where he's going to throw a preponderance of balls that only his guy can get to, and his guy is the best guy you've lined up against all year. Like That's a really interesting dichotomy, and neither one of them seems like a very fun matchup as a DB, but I wonder which one they think is actually tougher, because Hooker can, can hurt you with his legs so much and you saw instances in this game, the ones we talked about post game, the one on the, the the touchdown, or I'm sorry, the interception to start the second half, where you know uh, Ohio State tries play action, so Campbell is flat footed for a second because he has to read that, but he reads it. Once he realizes that the handoff didn't happen, now he you can already see him drifting back immediately because he knows Stroud's not going to run the ball. So he's already, even before he goes into coverage, he's already getting deeper. So that when he does go into coverage, he's right there to make that interception. That's just one example of a play that worked out like exactly wrongly for Ohio State. But it does, when we when we look at Alabama and having such a, a, a bad game against Hooker, how would that have looked if it was a very different kind of quarterback? I, I don't know. It's, a, it's hard to apply one result to the next scenario because they are so different. Yeah. I mean, would Ohio State's offensive line is going to have to play great, right? If CJ is clean, then a defense is in trouble. But if Will Anderson and Dallas Turner are in his grill, he's not going to do the exact same thing that Hendon Hooker is going to do in that situation. But also he might just get rid of the ball and find an open guy. And that's how he beats those situations. Yeah. Uh, I did look at Clemson. Clemson's got some problems, right? They just, they have a lot of, Pretty lowly rated guys. Andrew Makuba, I think, is like a pretty darn good safety for them. But I think they have some real issue at corner. They're playing a bunch of young guys. It hasn't been great. 
if if and I think it's reasonably possible a Clemson really might hang on by the skin of its teeth the whole season. I absolutely think there's a world where we see Ohio State Clemson in the playoff. I, I don't think that's impossible. The complicating factor would no. be if you get two SEC teams in the playoff, they're not going to want to play them against each other. So then Ohio State's not going to play Clemson because both Ohio State and Clemson are going to play SEC teams. But if you don't have that, I could see like undefeated Clemson being fourth. I mean, I really could. And, and like undefeated Ohio State being yeah. first, or I could see undefeated Ohio State being edged out by the SEC champ, whether they're undefeated or not. And then undefeated Clemson being third. Again, I think, I think it's, very, I think there's a scenario where Clemson's on the board, and if so, it's going to be about Clemson's people up front with Miles Murphy and Brian Brzee and then Trenton Simpson at linebacker. It's that group. Can they get enough pressure? Can they absolutely shut down the run game? And then I don't know if they can cover it. They probably can't cover the Ohio State receivers. So I don't think we need to have a long conversation about Clemson because I do want to talk about Michigan. And I, by the way, quick, I, go ahead. I just want to say real quick about Clemson. It's funny that when Alabama was having some issues earlier this year and was having some close wins, I think at least from listening to you on the playoff show and other stuff you talked about here, it made it seem like it, it convinced you that Alabama was eventually going to lose and maybe then not even make the playoff. And every time Clemson has right. one of these things where they sort of like trip and fall into a win, I think, oh, now they're definitely going to go to the playoff. Like it just seems like there's they're running out of teams that could plausibly beat them, and they somehow keep sle- sneaking by. I think they're going to be 13-0 and go to the playoff. I mean, the, the, the wrinkle there... I'm like more there, convinced than I was last week. Yeah. The wrinkle there is maybe the ACC championship game if they get North Carolina and Drake May, who might be the closest approximation that they would get of CJ Stroud before they get to CJ Stroud. He can slant a little bit. So I don't, I'm not saying Josh Downs is a good receiver. I don't, I'm not saying, but if they have some weaknesses, if they can be attacked through the air, it might not be CJ Stroud that undoes them. It might be Drake may. And then CJ Stroud never gets to see Clemson because Clemson's out. I don't think Clemson would make it as a one loss team. There'd be too many other, other people who could get it ahead of them. I, th- I think the especially other, if they uh, lose the ACC championship game, they're not going to make it. If they lose the ACC, certainly not. No, and it, and especially if it was to someone like Notre Dame, North Carolina, because I think that would be a flawed enough team in the committee's eyes that it would knock them out. But I think North Carolina's defense might be the kind of defense that could make Clemson's offense look really good. That's true, and you have to be on alert. I I don't know what they're going to do. I think they've said that DJ Uyunglele is going to be the starter next week, but they benched him in the second half, and Cade Klubnik did some stuff and led them back. And that has been the all-year wrinkle that on the College Football Survivor Show, we spent a lot of time in that in August. And it's why I picked Clemson to make the playoff, because I said, whatever happens, it's not going to be as catastrophic of a quarterback situation as it was a year ago when DJ was bad and they didn't have anybody to go to. So if DJ's terrible, they'll go to Cade Klubnick, who's a true freshman, but it's a five-star guy. Or DJ will be better. And so far, it's been both. That DJU has been better than he was last year, which is why he's kept the job. But then he was bad enough against Syracuse on Saturday that he got benched, and then Cade Klubnick, five-star freshman, came in and saved him. So I'll be curious to see how that works itself out. They do, they do not have a secondary that can hang with Ohio State. They would have to do other things, and I don't exactly know what they would be. Michigan, oh, and I want to say this. I was looking at mock drafts. Because I was like goofing around, because like, oh, the Browns, maybe the Browns will get a, a, a high pick. And it's like, I know, I, they traded all their picks for Deshaun Watson. It's like, haha, <laughs> the Browns are screwed. Um, I saw a Mac draft that had Jack Campbell like 14th. 
So just as a note, <laughs> like on, hey, Jack Campbell, that was like Micah McFadden, I think, went in like the fourth round or something last year. You know, it's like, hey, it's like a Big Ten linebacker. Like I, the, Jack Campbell is like might be a first round pick. So let's just make sure I mean, that we like he might be Isaiah Simmons. Right. I mean, it's like, oh, Jack Campbell, it's like he might be the only linebacker that Ohio State will play between now and a national championship parade that could have made the interception that he made on Saturday, right? Like, let's make sure he's our preseason Big Ten player of the year. That was not a normal play. He's quite talented. I will say, though, he was the Big Ten preseason player of the year in our poll because he, like, led the nation in tackles last year. And I, those guys get those votes a lot, I think. I think that was more of it than people who did like an in-depth yes. analysis of how great he was. And I thought he looked great on Saturday. So I now yeah. wish I could go back and vote for him. And he, he definitely did things that made me think he should maybe be the postseason Big Ten player of the year if he keeps some of that stuff up. Um, that's really hard like to do from rangy. a team that might end up being with a losing record. But yeah. Um, he seems impressive. like rangy and also physical in the run game. Like he's kind of like sometimes yeah. you have a certain style of linebacker who's one or the other and it feels like he's both. Um so let's keep that in mind. Michigan has a guy. DJ Turner is a, a legit corner. And if we're talking about what Joey Porter Jr. would do for Penn State, what Riley Moss did for Iowa, what Keely Ringo might do for um, Georgia, what Eli Ricks or Kool-Aid McKinstry that would do for Alabama. Like, do you have a guy that you can kind of say, all right, you got to get, you got to handle this guy by yourself so we can gang up on everybody else. DJ Turner might be that guy like you read draft stuff he's probably like a first two days pick maybe not like a surefire first rounder but like first second third round guy um and then their safeties are playing pretty well they're working in will johnson this five-star guy that like ohio state maybe you know took a look at but wound up at michigan I they just fit that a little bit the same, Nathan. And I do think people who have watched Michigan, I think they've played some pretty bad quarterbacks who have chucked it around, which I think helps elevate like their pass defense that it's like, hey, you've been thrown on a lot, but not very well. It's like, yeah, well, because nobody could do it. They tried, but they're all terrible. So this is not to say that's like, oh, you know. CJ Stroud is not gonna be able to throw on Michigan, but I, but I do think, you know, they lost Dax Hill to the first round as a nickel nickel guy last year. He's gone there. They have some guys. And I think DJ Turner is the example that we're looking for one real standout corner. And then the rest of the guys, their grades are pretty good. Turner's 73.8 coverage grade, bunch of other guys, 74, 77, 78, 73. These are the guys that they're starting. So I, I, I do think, it's just put a little respect on the on the Michigan pass defense. And I looked at Michigan pretty skeptically coming into the year because when you lose Hutchinson, you lose a Jabo, and how critically central to the what that team did as a whole last year, let alone defensively, those guys were. So taking those guys off the field, as we talked about so many times, that sort of circular yin and yang that there is between coverage and pressure, how are they going to be able to hang how are they going to be able to replicate that defensive performance losing such talents and those guys had to step up in order for that to happen Michigan wouldn't be where it is right now if you didn't have guys stepping up and taking their game up a level to match what was going to regress as far as the front seven so again just to, to repeat on this by EPA which is just a metric of measuring contextual defensive play 
Notre Dame, this is the teams Ohio State's played. Notre Dame was 62nd in pass defense. Arkansas State was 125. Toledo was 79. Wisconsin was 75. Rutgers was 68. Michigan State was 114. These are all their numbers as of today. Not the time they played them, as of today. And Iowa's fifth. So Iowa's fifth, and the first six team they played, nobody was higher than 62. So again, that's the context. And teams they might face down the line. Um, I'm mostly looking at playoff teams. Michigan seven in the metric where Ohio where Iowa's five. Bama's 22, Georgia's 25, USC's 32, Clemson's 40. But it's like it's kind of like Michigan, Bama, Georgia. I think it, and again, we'll talk about Penn State more this week, but Michigan, Bama, Georgia, and and Illinois is first, but we'll deal with Illinois if and when we get to them. And if and when we get to Illinois, we are gonna do a nine-part Brett Bielema special podcast edition. So do not worry. We will have plenty of time to talk about Illinois if we get an Ohio State-Illinois Big Ten championship game. We will not skimp on that. But I do think Michigan just might be able to do some stuff. And then I think just the best versions of Georgia and Bama with the guys they have back there will maybe be able to do it. And again, it comes back to, in the end, what does that mean, Nathan Wright? What does that mean? Well, they just scored 54, 47 offensively, against the number five pass defense in the country, and they worked it out and kind of took over in the final quarter and a half. And a half. So they worked it out against a team that good, and then they will just they would just have to work it out against Michigan, Bama, and Georgia. But I'll end by saying this. A year ago, the most dominant unit in the nation, as good as Ohio State's offense was, the most dominant unit in the nation was Georgia's defense. Nobody would have argued that. That was from the first game when they held Clemson to three or seven or whatever it was. That was clear. Ohio State's offense is the most most dominant unit in the nation. And 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 if you want to make an argument for Tennessee's offense, that's great. I, I don't know who if you. I, I don't think you could argue argue Georgia's defense right now. I, I just don't think you could. I don't think there's anything about no. Michigan you could argue. There's nothing about Clemson. If you want to try to make a Bama argument that's entirely based on Bryce Young, but they have and Jameer Gibbs is a really good running back. But I I don't even know that there's really any. I'm not even sure there would be much pushback there. If someone said, "Oh, the best unit," so Ohio State it's, offense. No. Like, what it's are you Ohio talking State. about? Yes. It's Ohio State. So offense. like. That wasn't true as we had all these same conversations last year, Nathan. That wasn't true. And now it's true. They have the best unit in the nation. And they have the best passing game within that unit. But again, the the, the offensive line's playing really well. Cade Stover's playing really well. They have two running backs, but Ryan Day's dialing it up. We get it. That's what they are. So any context, the, the the name of this discussion, maybe we should have off the top said it is, who has a chance to maybe hang with the best unit in the country, which is the Ohio State offense. That's the context here. I think even more important, maybe as equally important as Ohio State, being able to say that about Ohio State now, that it's the best unit in the country, is that now it doesn't also have a defense that's going to undermine the good things that the offense does that happened on yes. multiple occasions last year. So I don't think we're actually that far apart in how we look at the Iowa game. This happens a lot. I think sometimes where it's just, we're both we're on the, we're just on different places on the same spectrum or whatever, because like 75% of me sa- thinks what you said, it's still 47 points against this number five, whatever this highly ranked defense. And they worked it out. 
There's 25% of me, though, that's saying, well, was it like a quarter of their drives on Saturday where they looked like in sync and moving the ball and sharp and in control of the game? And if you extrapolate that over a full game against a team that can move the ball itself, even against Ohio State's improved defense, now you're in a bit of a dogfight. And we just don't see a lot of we don't see a lot of dogfights, really. Like it's like one or two a year. I was thinking about this the other day. Like how many this is my fourth season covering this team. And like how many times has Ohio State had the ball at the end of the game down one possession with a chance to like go tie? It was like the Clemson playoff semifinal, mm. the Oregon game. Yeah. Yep. That's it. Twice. Like where they've it's had funny. to like make a play at the end of a game to try to come down and like tie it or go in the lead or whatever. It just never, it that's not the, they're either getting blown off the field, which very, very also rarely happens obviously, or they're just comfortably ahead at the end of the game. Yeah. That's happened to Jacoby Brissett and the Browns like four times in the last five games. Yeah. And it's happened to Ohio state twice in however five years. Yeah. So but little yeah. did you know when you were stalking Cade York at the combine or whatever, that the whole Brown season was going to come down to him kicking 50 plus yard field goals every single week at the gun to win the game. Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, like it was weird because we had done the, the ranking of the top 25 players when we re-ranked it during the off week and Noah Ruggles was on it in the preseason and didn't make it during the season because right. they just hadn't used him. And then it was like Noah Ruggles kicked four field goals in the first half. I was like, oh, yeah, Noah Ruggles. He actually did a very good job on Saturday. It was kind of important. I think it was important, and, and he's a guy that we dismiss it a little bit sometimes, but like when they had to have him last year at Nebraska, he steps up and boots him. Like they that might have that game might have been a problem if you had a bad kicker. And and Ruggles is a guy that I've also looked at a little skeptically because his numbers before he got to Ohio State were fine. He doesn't have a track record of kicking from distance. He I don't know if he's, he's not made the, he's not the kickoff guy. He doesn't have a huge leg, no. No, and I don't know that he's made from 50 or more at any point. I don't know if he's made any in his career from 50 or more. If he has, then it's still a it's a bad ratio, even for college kickers. So to see him come up and, and kick one from 46, even at home, even on a, a nice day, I don't know. I think that's a little bit of an important thing because maybe there's going to be a time where they're playing in a dome against somebody uh, later this year where they need 46 yards to put points on the board. We should do that. We probably should do an Illinois look in the next couple of weeks on this Monday show, um, just because the big 10 West is a mess. And it's like, it's clear like Purdue and Minnesota and it, all those teams are losing. Like it's, it's either going to be Illinois or it is going to be, it's either going to be Illinois or a team that's fired its coach. Because if it's not Illinois, it's going to be like backdoor Nebraska <laughs> or something insane. Well, yeah. So yeah, I was, I was talking to my parents are in town and they, I grew up in central Illinois, so they, they follow Illinois. And I was talking to my dad about this today. I said, hey, I think Illinois is going to win the West. And he's like, uh, I don't know. Like, I think there's there's skepticism there. And I'm like, well, listen, it's the West. So, like, on the one hand, they've already beaten Wisconsin, Iowa, and Minnesota. So they've beaten the other three teams that were the most likely picked to win the West. And they do still have to beat Purdue, which just took its second loss. But if Illinois hadn't lost to Indiana, it might be looking at like breezing through this thing, but it's also still the West. So I, if you told me that Illinois is still going to somehow lose this year to Nebraska and Northwestern, but then also still beat Purdue, I'd be like, yeah, that sounds right. 
It's the West. That'd be funny. If they hadn't lost to Illinois, like Brett Bielema could like rest his starters the last two weeks of the regular season <laughs> and like take the L's. He's like, listen, man, we're not, I mean, what are we trying to do anyway? We're not going to make the national championship game. We're just trying to get ready for Ohio State, the Big Ten championship game. Chase Brown's not playing <laughs> for two weeks. Well, um, if they hadn't lost Indiana, they might be looking at trying to go 12 and 0. So that's the only I loss they have right now. I'm just, I know. No, I know. I know. That was one of my, they're, they're six and one. They were, again, their preseason win-loss total was four and a half. They're six and one. Illinois, three and one in the Big Ten. Purdue, three and two. Nebraska, two and two. Wisconsin, two and three. Northwestern, Iowa, Minnesota, one and three. All right, that was the the passing game, pass defense discussion we wanted to have. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the power of college football coaches. Then we'll do what you're watching and all that stuff. Next, on Buckeye Talk. Doug Lamarice back with Nathan Baird. So we did not talk about this on the post game because it's not an Iowa podcast, but I did write a column. Um, I did go to the Iowa news conference and I asked Kurt Ferentz, I think it ended up being four questions. It was like one in the middle of the news conference and then like the last three. Uh, And then I found Gary Barta, the AD, who was kind of like standing around at the edge of the locker room. And I was like, hey, like I recognize you from being the the spokesperson for the college football playoff. Uh, and I talked to him. I got three questions in with him. And then I wrote a very critical column of the situation at Iowa, called for Brian Ferentz, the offensive coordinator, the son of Kirk Ferentz to be fired, railed against nepotism in college football, realizing it certainly is not uncommon. And certainly the idea, Nathan, that um, coaches, longtime coaches near the end of their tenures, consolidating power is also not uncommon. Kirk Ferentz has is is he he is by so by so far the longest tenured head coach in college football. When he got hired at Iowa, Nick Saban was still at Michigan State. Like that's how long (laughs) Kirk Ferentz has been at Iowa. Because like Nick Saban's like the fifth longest tenured guy. But when Kirk Ferentz was hired, like Nick Saban still had to go from Michigan State to LSU, from LSU to the NFL, from the NFL to Alabama. And Kirk Ferentz was at Iowa being like, well, you know. So he's been there forever. But it does – I just want to have a brief and, – and you guys can go read it. I mean, it's – I'm going on an Iowa radio station on Monday morning. Um, I've gotten tons of feedback from Iowa fans about this. Uh, but it's I – wrote, I wrote it, Nathan, because I think it it could happen anywhere. And it has happened anywhere. And, and before I get to you, I'm going to give a little speech here that I wanted to give. Because, um, not to this extent, but I do think to some degree, this was maybe what some people, I don't want to say feared, but you wondered if this could happen with Jim Tressel. Because the whole thing with Kirk Ferentz is that back at a time when Kirk Ferentz was coaching his Jim Tressel at Ohio State, they were not dissimilar. Ohio State had more talent, but they kind of went about it in very similar ways. And they played some great games, for instance, in the Terrell Pryor era, where it came down to the fourth quarter. It went into overtime. They were barn burners. And then a lot of times it'd be like, well, Terrell Pryor is skilled and he can do some things and he'll pull a game out for you. But Kirk Ferentz competed. That was when Ohio State was undoubtedly the best program in the Big Ten. And Kirk Ferentz was like, well, we can hang with these guys. And so Kirk Ferentz is still living in a Jim Trestle world. And Ohio State is three evolutions past Jim Trestle football. And that's not a criticism of Jim Trestle, but if Jim Trestle was the head coach at Ohio State right now, still coaching the exact same way that he coached, he would be up for criticism. 
I don't think there's any doubt about that because it's not just nepotism. Now, the nepotism with having your son who has only ever worked for two people in his entire life, his dad and his dad's friend, Bill Belichick. Those are the only two head coaches that Brian Ferentz has ever worked for. So when people say, oh, Brian Ferentz is qualified, it's by what measure? How do you know? I work for my dad. I work for my dad's friend. Like it's he's You don't know. He's never gone out in the world. But it's not just nepotism, Nathan. Nepotism is the worst example of it. But there also is the blind loyalty to your guys. And before everything fell apart with Trestle, that was happening to some degree. Nick Siciliano as a quarterback's coach, Jim Bowman as an offensive line coach and then offensive coordinator kind of at the end. And it was like, these are not the best guys that you could get for these positions. But Jim Bowman's been with Jim Trestle forever. Nick Siciliano was the guy in the building, you know, behind Joe Daniels. Then Joe Daniels got six, so he promoted him. And it's, you don't have to be related to somebody to be blindly loyal to them to the detriment of the program. And Trestle sort of always had this thing of like, "Ah, I don't know that he, Ference is 67. I don't know if Trestle would have coached until he was 67. I think he maybe would have retired before that and gone into, you know, been a professor at Ohio State or wound up doing some of the things he did. But because of what happened and him being forced to resign, you didn't face this. And I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on this. I didn't research this. You have a general feel of it. You know, Woody was here for 28 years. And in the end, you know, they're begging Woody to throw the ball with Arch Schleister and stuff. And like Woody is like having a hard time evolving and they're kind of dragging him in to the future. And I do, you know, Woody's Woody. So I do think Ohio State faced that to some degree with Woody, but then the punch happened and then it was over. Like you didn't have to have the difficult conversation of like, well, they're still kind of winning, but they're not as good. So Ohio State really has never faced quite this where the longtime legendary coach who's locked in, who's consolidated power, who has succeeded, Kirk Ferentz has absolutely succeeded, now is facing a downturn and is holding on tight to what he thinks he owns. And a university and an athletic director and a president and a fan base are faced with the prospect of, what do we do with this guy? And I'm not saying that Trestle would have been like Kirk Ferentz, because I think what Kirk Ferentz is doing in multiple ways right now is terrible. His son-in-law is also the recruiting coordinator, and he had this whole issue of a potential um, incorrect handling of racial issues a couple years ago, which like sort of permeates underneath all of this. There are multiple things that it feels like Kirk Ferentz is doing wrong. I'm not at all saying that about Jim Trestle, but I'm saying Ohio State hasn't had to deal with this. Well, Florida State had to deal with it with Bobby Bowden, and Penn State had to deal with it with Joe Paterno. And I do think the dangerous thing here, Nathan, is, and I didn't want to muddy the waters of like, hey, fire your kid which is basically what the column was, fire your kid. Your kid's not qualified to be doing this. He's terrible at it. Fire your kid. But there's actually a larger issue, I think, at play here, Nathan, which is if you just allow a college football, a longtime college football coach to consolidate power, answer to no one, do whatever he wants to do, and you are afraid to challenge him, hiring your kid as the offensive coordinator, it might be the least of your worries. Because you can't let the king lock himself in the tower and say, I'm the king, leave me alone. You have to guide your football program. And so that is sort of overlaying all of this to me. I didn't go into all of that in the piece, but it's not just that it's crazy that his kid's offense is awful and he keeps employing him. 
to me, it's almost a sign of what else is wrong there. Like who knows, right? Like if, if he's blind to this and refuses to act on this, what else is he blind to and refusing to act to? And it's a tough spot. Well, I mostly feel for Iowa fans. It sucks for them because it's actually not a tough spot for ADs and presidents. Do your freaking job. Football coaches, I know they're the highest paid people in every in every state in the union. The highest paid public employee is a football coach. That's what society has done to us. That's what, what we decided to do. It's why we have a six-time-a-week podcast about the Ohio State football team, not the Ohio State chemistry department. But you don't have to be beholden to that guy. And I do think, Nathan, the fact that Scott Frost sucked at Nebraska and Wisconsin just fired Paul Christ, it should be an example to Iowa of don't let stuff fester. But I almost think it works in reverse, that they're so afraid of being Nebraska That's, yep. that, that they hold on to this guy. And it's like you can't let Nebraska's failings allow Kurt Ferentz to hold Iowa hostage. But I, have a, I, I think the issue is – too much power for college coaches, and the longer they're there, the tighter they hold to it. And somebody at a university has to stand up to that. And you can't be afraid of it. And it feels like nobody that I was doing that right now. It is a very delicate thing at times because I have also seen a situation where the AD wants too much control, too much influence over who the head coach is hiring as his assistants. And that doesn't work either, necessarily. You do have to give that person, I think, the freedom to uh, – to. you can't, I don't think, impose your guys on the head coach to, to some extent or your expectations of, of, of to a certain extent on the head coach. But clearly you also can't – there has to be a check and balance there. And listen, the, the family nepotism is one thing, but, I mean, who have you railed against – the most of all the head coach of all the assistant coaches that have been hired at Ohio state in like the last decade, it wasn't urban Meyer hiring his kid or his cousin or whatever, but it was hiring like the guy that was the best man at his wedding. And yes, you know what I mean? That's its own kind of nepotism. It's not textbook nepotism, but it's kind of the same thing. It's like you're high. It's cronyism. And yes, it's just as potentially devastating. And I'm very curious if, Gene Smith is paying attention to some of these things because it's almost an extra danger at Ohio State because maybe you think you're above it. Maybe you think, well, we don't have to make the concessions that Iowa does to Kirk Ferentz because we don't we don't have to bend over backwards for him because we can always if if things if if, if the head coach is going to balk at who we want how we want to let him run the program we can go find someone who is great who would be dying to cover to coach Ohio State but it's funny you mentioned that because I said this I had I had emailed with a friend who is an Iowa alum I had emailed him earlier in the week just being like good God, what are you guys doing with this offense? And he sent me a long email back and, and it, there was some good explanation in there, but I sent him one back on Saturday after the game, just being like, wow, that was even worse than I thought. Like, what, what are you like? Why is there still support for Kirk Ferentz? And his exact quote was like, I, I said a bunch of things. He said like that, that's all fair. The fear is that if Kirk leaves, Phil Parker leaves. And if that's the full reset, we might become Purdue or something. And then he sent a follow-up email or Nebraska. Here's the problem. Purdue's beaten Iowa like four of the last five times. Like Iowa is not – when when the thing starts to fall apart, and they were just in the Big Ten Championship game last year, I know, and uh, they were 
close in 2020. They were really surging at the end of 2020. They lost some games they maybe shouldn't have early in 2020. They might have been the team that should have been playing Ohio State in 2020. That could have been an interesting game, the way that that played out against Northwestern. Because I think that Iowa team was probably better than Northwestern that year. And so it's I guess it, it, it's a mix between like very recently even they've been relevant, but you can see the cracks. And and when when you have let an offense deteriorate to this point, and when you have been unable to facilitate the most important position, not just in on your team or in that sport, but really at the entire university, like the entire athletic program, like you've got to find a quarterback when you've got nothing that can be put on the field at that position. Like it, it speaks volumes about how far out and just out it, it, this has gone. And you had a great stat that uh, the Ralph Russo article from the AP earlier in the year, where like something like 38% of the power five programs have some kind of nepotism higher. It's just, it's astonishing. And that doesn't even include a situation like the Bill Davis thing or the Corey Dennis thing that we've talked about, which is, as you uh, stated in the, uh, your phrase in the article of nepotism by proxy, like that doesn't include those things. So it's really probably above 50% when you start kind of pulling in the cronyism and the, 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 those little favors. So I, I don't really understand it because there's so much at stake and uh, the best people, um, a place that you can, you can hire those. I, I don't understand it. And until, but it, it really does come down to the ADs, the presidents, somebody above the coaches has to put their foot down. Um, I, I, because as much as you want to respect people like Kirk Ferentz or Ryan Day or Urban Meyer for what they've accomplished, uh, history has shown us that you can go find another coach and there might be a bumpy road for a while, but I, I, I don't bow at the altar of the coaches to the point where I think you have to um, make these sorts of concessions to them and turn over this much power to them and uh, put yourself in a position where uh, you don't have a way. Like, there's no exit strategy for Iowa right now. It's a $42 million buyout. That guy's there until he doesn't want to be there. And uh, the you know, unfortunately, what happened off the field for them a couple of years ago was maybe the exit strategy. If they chose to take it, they didn't. They extended him, and now look where they are. Like they're in a really, uh, uh, it's it's a rock and a hard place situation because this whole thing is well, they'll re- they'll reevaluate the situation at the end of the year and and decide what they want to do. As you point out in the article, they could very well decide that Brian Ferentz is still going to be the offensive coordinator. And what do you do there? Like, what do you do at that point? They Bobby Bowden hired his kid as offensive coordinator, and then it went so south that his kid eventually quit, like resigned in November, effective at the end of that year. Uh, I wonder if Brian Ferentz will quit. He had said a couple weeks ago that he's not going to resign when he was asked by Iowa reporters about that. But um, it's very convoluted. And uh, I think, you know, there's just, I've heard from some very interesting people who are very involved in things who agree with what I wrote, but aren't in a position to say similar things. Um, so it's not like a wild hair. And there's, there's just a, a, a whole lot of Iowa fans who are, who are feeling this. And so I just think there needs to be pressure applied here. Right. I mean, that's why you, you it's not like I'm do, but like Iowa fans are doing it right. Like this, this is a question that needs to continually be asked because uh, it's that important 
uh, of a situation. This is what we have chosen to do as a society. We have elevated college sports teams to this level of importance. And so then it's real issues. It's not, uh, it's just football. Hey, what's your problem? It's just, it's not, it's not. Okay. When we come back, we will do what you watching, what you eating, what you thinking on Buckeye Talk. All right, Nathan, I want to start with what you eating because I'm not still sure what I'm what I'm watching. Oh, I know what I'm going to watch. It's what I'm going to be watching. But what I'm eating, it is the fanciest thing that I eat. And it makes me feel like a king. If, if to, to me, I this is what I think Kirk Ferentz eats for breakfast every day. Because it is what a king, it is what you would have your court chef make for you as a king. And it's the breakfast souffle at Padera. It's the only time that I say souffle. I don't know how to make a souffle. What other it's just like a kind of like a <laughs> like I'm I only talk about souffle you, when I'm having breakfast. <laughs> like I'm like I'm gonna take this souffle and cram it somewhere. Um, it is just a delicious little breakfast. I always get the spinach and bacon one. It's very flavorful. It's like. I guess this is what souffles are, but it's almost like inside a croissant, and then they lay a piece of bacon across it, like a like someone sunbathing on a delicious little breakfast snack. It's only for special occasions because it's a little pricey, but my wife um, got it for me. She went and picked it up and got it for me for breakfast on Sunday morning, and it absolutely makes me feel like a ferret, like I am in, on top of the world, and I am in charge, and nobody can question me when I'm eating, and it's Panera. But it's so fancy. Have you indulged in the fancy Panera breakfast souffle? I don't know that I've ever had a souffle. I've had any number of other egg dishes. Your omelets, your quiches, whatnot. Uh, The frittata. I don't believe I've had a souffle. So tricky to make. I mean, anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even know how you would make it. It's like you hollow out a croissant and stuff an egg mix in it. I don't even know. I don't even know how. It's like rocket science to me. How would you do this? So I'll let Panera handle the heavy lifting. I actually think Panera probably just gets them sent in from corporate headquarters frozen and they heat them up. (laughs) But they're still good. They're so good. They're so good. Sometimes you go and they're out of them. Hmm. Because they've been consumed. They've been all they've all been consumed. And then you say, hey, well, if they're all consumed, could you make me one? And they're like, no, we're done for the day. And it's like, okay, I see how it is. I'm not – today, I am not royalty, but tomorrow I shall return. So I just would recommend anybody try it. If you try it, send us a text, 614-350-3315, or send us on tw- a Twitter, tweet, Twitter, what you think of the Panera Souffle. What are you eating? I've been so excited to record this segment because – there is one chain restaurant that has come up on this podcast that you've mentioned multiple times. And until Friday night, I had never been there. So I got to have oh. my first experience. Is this a scandal brewing? A scandal? Like that uh, that you're going to say you'd never been to a chain restaurant now that I had assumed that you had previously been to, and you've been kind of like faking your way through. It's like, no, oh, yeah, no, no, chain no. restaurant, cool, man. No, okay. no, I believe okay. it had come up before, and I was like, oh, I've actually never been there. And you were like, what? Uh, <laughs> but it was for whatever reason. Okay, that sounds we, right. We had decided, that sounds right. 
we had, we had decided he's like yeah that checks out um friday night we were my parents were in town they said you guys should go out friday night my wife and i they were gonna watch the kid and my, so i left up to my wife like hey where do you want to go and for whatever reason while we usually go to like you know your local neighborhood joints she was like hey how about cheesecake factory <sighs> i had cheesecake factory for the first time friday night and i just had it for the second time having leftovers tonight did you were you amazed at the portion size so the portion size was pretty impressive. I got the meatloaf, which is the other thing I wanted to bring up because we had a meatloaf discussion here a couple months ago. Very good meatloaf, I thought. Pretty good meatloaf. They give you like three big pieces of meatloaf, though, and I think they need to balance out the meatloaf mashed potato ratio because I didn't really have I, – I, I saved about half of my meatloaf for tonight for the leftovers, but I ate most of my mashed potatoes. It was not a good balance there. So that's just a little tweak I would make for Mr. Cheesecake Factory. I don't know why they do it. Like you get chicken there and they give you two breasts, two chicken breasts. It's like who eats two chicken breasts for dinner? Right. This is impossible. Yeah. And to say like, can I just pay less and have the portion size of what a normal human would eat? I don't I don't know how they zeroed in on that idea of how they were going to do their business. Yeah, I, I don't know. Did – I thought I had remembered you because we needed to – we were going to order an appetizer. Was it the Buffalo – Buffalo Blast. Buffalo Blast. That's the th that's your thing, right? Yeah. That's, I think, my favorite appetizer anywhere. Did you get them? Yeah. Did you get them? We got them. Yeah. What would you think? They were quite good. Yeah. They're hot lava buffalo inside breaded stuff. Yeah. yeah that's good. Yeah. No, very good. So you were – you were pleased. Did you get cheesecake then? Oh, heck yeah. We got cheesecake, Doug. Um, we got some kind of Oreo, some kind of cheesecake. Yep. We just split it at the end. Um, because that's more than enough for two people. And, uh, but oh, this was actually my favorite part of the whole experience though, was you're getting close to the end of your meal or, you know, you're about th what, three quarters of the way through and the waitress comes by and she's like, are you, are you also going to get cheesecake tonight? And we're like, yeah, we're definitely going to cheesecake. And she's like, cause or I think even before we said yes, she's like, because you probably want to put your cheesecake order in soon because sometimes you get backed up back there. And as soon as she left, I was like, that's BS. Like we walked. <laughs> the, the cheesecake rack is right there when you walk in. There's just there's just cheesecake there. You just go in and get a slice of cheesecake and bring it to our table. Like they don't have to make a slice of cheesecake from scratch. It's they're telling you that because they don't want you to keep eating and then realize you're too full for cheesecake. They want you to yeah. get that cheesecake order in as early as possible. And she's like, oh, my God, you're right. Like, we just totally got scammed. But we didn't because we were going to – we wanted to order cheesecake anyway. That was part of the experience. But I was just like – it was funny to me that they felt like they had to put that affectation on it. Like, you, you really want to try to beat the rush. I'm like, we are well, – first of all, it was an 815 reservation. It's like 930 already. Like, how many people are going to be pouring in here soon to eat up all of your cheesecake? Like, there's – we saw how many full cheesecakes you have sitting in the case. Like there's not a shortage. This isn't a supply chain issue. It It is a good strategy to name your restaurant for the dessert, because if you're going to dinner, like you, you kind of have to eat the entree. And then it's like, you feel it's like, Oh, did you get cheesecake at the cheesecake factory? You're like, nah, it's like, what? Right. Right. So if I, like I would have, like if I had a restaurant, I would call it like the pie palace. And it's like, oh, did you get pie? It's like, nah, I just had a hamburger. It's like, are you, 
are you a moron? So it's like it almost it it forces your hand. But and then it is you it's, it's, you ate this like, giant expensive entree that's too huge for any human to eat. But then you must because of the name of the restaurant get dessert. No one it's hand over fist they're making money hand over fist. Well, yep. welcome aboard. Thank you. Still, it's special occasions. You know, I I don't know how. Yeah, you've got to be a, you've got to be a ferent to go to the cheesecake factory for no reason, like just for like, hey, you want to go? I'm going to go either to Burger King or the Cheesecake Factory on Tuesday night. That's ferent's living. That is not normal human living. But it's like right. a nice place to go for uh, birthdays. Yeah, it's it it's it's like an upscale chain. It was I was trying to compare it though, like it still felt more chain than upscale to me. Are you familiar with like Cooper's Hawk? You ever eaten at a Cooper's Hawk? No. It's another no. chain. It, like, they serve that I would call like an... <laughs> yeah, Right. Mm, delicious. Oh, did you get their the hawk? hawk? No, I didn't. Their, I feel like an idiot. <laughs> their Hawk is good. It's not as good as Panda Express as Panda, but it's good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cooper's Hawk, it's like this chain, like winery restaurant place. They have them in, I think, I'm sure there's one around here. Uh, I've eaten about them in like suburban Chicago, Northwest Indiana. They're in, in, in uh, uh, like the Carmel area in Indiana. Like there's, so they are just in usually like nicer suburbs. That feels more upscale than it does chain, even though it is also an upscale chain. This felt more chain than upscale. And if I had to spend the same amount on a meal that we spent at Cheesecake Factory, I don't, I'm, I'm processing it. Like, I'm not sure that I wouldn't rather just go somewhere else and probably get better food. But as you pointed out, you didn't really get one meal at Cheesecake Factory. You True. got two. True. Very true. Factor that in. You got to yep. take the leftovers. Okay. Yep. Uh, what are what are you watching? What did you go home? Did you go home and watch something with all that cheesecake in your belly? We didn't. No. Uh, we came home and tried to go to sleep, I think, as soon as possible. Um uh, actually, I had to stay up and get some stuff written for the, the you know the next morning, pre in in anticipation of some of the news that was coming out around Ohio State football on Saturday morning. Um, but I we have been watching the boys, and I can't remember if I brought up the boys before, but the boys is the Amazon superhero uh, show, but it's like it's not a glorified. Are you familiar with it? I am not. Okay, I'm familiar not, with boys generally, yes, but not the, but show the boys. boys, the boys, and it's actually not even a great title for the show because the boys it 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 doesn't the boys are the people who are on the opposite side of the the superheroes, but it's like it's it's a it's 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 a show from the perspective of what if superheroes were real and how would society react to them and how would they actually act and instead of being these like you know. Um, very like morally upstanding the sacrificial people they're a bunch of jerks and they're a bunch of like selfish terrible people who use their power for their own good and then the boys are these people who are kind of out to expose them and and put them in their place and that sort of thing and i have come on this podcast before and been a little bit of a wet blanket when it comes to like superhero movies and the marvel universe and stuff like that and i thoroughly enjoy the boys because it takes away all of the the pretense and the uh that just sort of saccharine fake um i'm supposed to care like it's it's it it just feels it's very gritty and it's actually i'm not even gonna recommend it for a lot of people because they go really over the top 
with some of the like gore and stuff it to an like it's almost to a comic degree but it's pretty disturbing at times so definitely like mature audiences and make sure that you're not too squeamish but if you want something that's got a little bit more of an edge to it and it kind of um just takes the the genre and turns it on its head uh it's a really fun show i couldn't quite squeeze it in but to a comic degree but pretty disturbing at times buckeye talk um (laughs) i should have paused the the, uh so i haven't watched this yet but i'm assuming i'm gonna go watch it because i think it's intended for me but like you know julia roberts and george clooney have a movie where i don't know it's called uh dance party or something i don't know they're old people doing stuff yeah it's called julian roberts and george clooney have a movie yeah just called it's just a reminder i mean everybody knows this but it's like the way that you realize you're getting old is that famous people get old Otherwise, you would not realize that you yourself were aging. And so it's like, oh, like I just looked up George Clooney is 61 and Julie Roberts is 54. And it's like, oh, wait, no, that means I must be old, too. So I just have to remind myself that I'm getting old. I'm going to go see that movie. But then also, I don't know what to do with this. I don't have Paramount Plus because I only have 17 of the 31 streaming services that are out there. Right. So I, but what is Tulsa King and what is going on with Sylvester Stallone's face in it? And it's constantly being advertised, but also Annabella Ciora is in it and Dana Delaney is in it and Andrea Savage is in it. And those are three Mm -hmm. actresses that I really like all of them. And I can't Mm -hmm. believe they don't have something better to do than be in the Sylvester Stallone. I'm a mobster in Tulsa Paramount plus show. It always disturbs me when I think like talented people, and I guess they've been around a while too. They just want a job, but it's like seriously, I love Dana Delaney. China Beach man, China what are Beach? we talking about? We're gonna put her. We're yeah. gonna put her on the on the on the Tulsa King Paramount Plus show. Like we can't get a better gig for Dana Delaney. So I don't think I'm gonna watch that, but I feel like I'm being told that I should watch it because I watched a football game and they ran 14 advertisements for it. So I don't have Paramount Plus yet. Maybe I'll have to get it when Ohio State Rutgers is on Paramount Plus next year. That's not actually going to happen, I don't think. Well, it might, but I don't know. It probably won't, but we'll expense it if it does. Okay, Uh, what are you thinking? Uh, Just real quick, have you seen the Andrea Savage series, I'm Sorry? Yes, I watched it all. I thought she was hilarious. It's fantastic. It's one of the best things I've seen in the last decade. I was really, really um, disappointed when that didn't have a longer run than it did. It's like Kirby Enthusiasm, except from that. Yeah. It's like she's the kind of person on that show who's like, hey, do you want to be on a on an Oklahoma mob show with Sylvester Stallone? And she would like kick you in the face. And now in real life, yeah. she's in it. It's like, OK, well, OK, yeah. I guess everyone needs a job. Um, what I've been thinking about the last uh, like 24 hours or so is moms. I've got. So my wife is now a mom and she's been awesome at it. She's like actually sick right now. It's a second time recently that she's gotten sick, but she's still just like working her butt off to be an awesome mom to our son. And there's your job. It's for all parents with a baby that small, like there's that young, you're going at it all the time. It's long hours, but like for her, it's, she's the one who has to deal with a lot of things that I not that I don't want to help with, but I literally just can't do like, I can't feed the baby the same way she can. And it's, uh, been really impressed with just, uh, the way that she's kicking ass and, and being an awesome mom. And then my mom, like I said, my, my family came into town this weekend and I came home from the game on Saturday and there was a pot of homemade 
vegetable beef soup on the stove and like a giant loaf of bread that she had just baked. It was like filling the whole house with the smell of freshly baked bread. And I was just like, this is amazing. This is like the perfect thing to be eating after that day, like that kind of a fall football day to come home and have that waiting for you was amazing. So I've been thinking a lot about um, awesome moms and how fortunate we are to have them. And um, yeah. Feels like maybe you got in trouble and had to say something nice about your wife on the podcast. You don't listen to this podcast. My wife. She's like, oh, well, Nathan Nathan did that, but he did talk about me on Buckeye Talk, which I listen to every day. (laughs) Uh, I've I've often thought this. I think, again, I like to say things. It's like, well, everybody thinks that, Doug. Great opinion. But uh, and, And it can be a very, very long stretch of your life, right? But the moment, the times in your life when you are simultaneously a parent and a kid, Right, that your parents are still around, and now you have a child of your own, and you get to do both things. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I'm in charge of this person, but also my mommy made me some soup. Like, is the best. Like, that's like it's a it's a window, and it can be it could be it could be a sixty year window, right? I mean, it could be right. practically your whole life. So, um, it is a it's a wonderful time when that happens, when you, and you are experiencing that right now. Like, you're getting to take care of someone and also be taken care of by your mom and dad, and that's uh, that's about as cool as it gets. Um, all right. So this is what I'm thinking about. And I just would like to state for the record that my, um, experience as an athlete is changing and I am evolving as an athlete. And I know that people on this podcast, you think of me as someone who covers sports, who talks about sports, who writes about sports, but maybe you don't think to yourself, Doug also is an athlete himself, but there, something happened to me and, uh, it's a big change. And I'm kind of excited about it. And I just wanted to, to share it with people. So I had previously belonged to like a gym, right? Um, and then like the pandemic came and I stopped going, but I wanted the gym to like not die. So I sort of was like, well, I'll keep the membership and like whatever. And then like I got done with it and it actually had changed, um, went from one gym to another and it was like super bro now. And so I went in and I was like, I'm quitting this gym. And the bro was like, all right, man. And I was like, okay, this is not for me anymore. Thanks, bro. <laughs> and that's fine. But like, I'm 49. That's not for me. So I joined, I went to run on the indoor track at my community rec center the other day. And then it was so lovely. And I hadn't been in there in several years and they've redone it uh, that I, I signed up for the monthly pass. So I was running on the indoor track at the community rec center in the middle of the day on a weekday. And I was dominating. I passed so many septuagenarians <laughs> on that indoor track. I was smoking gray hairs that day. I must have, this track is only, it's seven laps to a mile. So it's a pretty small track. And I was roasting people. There were this, there were these pickleball games going on beneath me. And I was watching those and I was like, I would destroy these 70 year olds at pickleball. I got the, I got the pamphlet from the rec center and they have all this cool stuff that you can start to do when you're 55. So I feel like a guy, like a golfer waiting for the senior tour. It's like, Oh man, I can't wait till I'm 55 and I'm just going to dominate all these athletic things. So, um, I, the idea, I once again, for the first time in a very, 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 maybe ever, was the most dominant athlete where I was. And I I love working out 
in the middle of the day with 70 year old people and just dropping like an 11 minute mile on them and just being like, take some of that. And there's people walking like in jeans, right? You know, like people show up, it's like, Hey, I'm just trying to like stretch my legs and I'm, I'm wearing jeans at the workout place and doing that. But it was a, it was a special moment for me, Nathan. It got me reinvigorated. It made me feel good about myself. And so if you're someone who's middle-aged, who's, you know, feeling like you're kind of losing it a little bit, I cannot recommend highly enough your community rec center in the middle of the day when everybody else who's not retired is working <laughs> and uh, just go rip off an 11 minute mile and and let everybody know who's boss. I mean, it's just, you're literally on here bragging about having won a non-race against yeah. multiple people who've had hip replacements. But like by so much though, like I won it by so much. So um, I just felt so Cool. But then the problem was, then I went on, I went Friday evening and I went at a time when the workday was over for many people and I was no longer the fastest person on the track and I did not like that. So I was like, oh, I'm <laughs> definitely only going to work out in the middle of the day on weekdays uh, when it's just the retired people. So cannot recommend the community rec center uh, enough. Okay. That'll do it for this edition of Buckeye Talk. We'll be back with Wednesday rants. And I think we'll do another, all three of us, rapid fire this week. We might have some crossover podcast stuff, potentially, with some of our friends at uh, Penn Live. We would send you toward their coverage this week of the Ohio State-Penn State game, PennLive.com, the best Penn State coverage around, Bob Flanders and Dave Jones and a bunch of other people over there. So, um, and of course, this is, you know, so this will be a fun game this week, and we'll be covering uh, the Buckeyes for all of that. For now, for Nathan Baird. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. Mm-hmm.